Listener Production. Okay, are you recording? Crew, welcome along to episode 154 of the Howie Games Part A, featuring swimmer, businesswoman, and all-round star, Lisa Curry. Lisa has just released a fascinating book. It's a cracking read. It is called Lisa, a memoir, 60 years of life, love and loss. It's published by the good folk at HarperCollins and is available in all cool bookstores and online. It's a great read, fantastic. So do yourself a favour because this podcast really only scratches the surface of the book. So you search and try to find But you don't know where to go So many thoughts flood through your mind You're confused and want to know mystery what is to be so much more than meets the eye listen to me time is your key you will find out by and by now lisa as you're about to hear is a very very strong person she's had to be when she was competing when living a life under the public gaze when running businesses and tragically when dealing with the loss of one of her children lisa's daughter jamie passed away in september 2020 aged just 33 If you or anyone you know is affected by eating disorders, Lisa recommends you visit the website ended.org.au. That's E-N-D-E-D, ended.org.au, which provides tools and support for those whose lives have been affected by eating disorders. On the topic of businesses, Lisa now runs the very successful Happy Healthy You, which provides help in the women's health space to hundreds of thousands of women. So many lost and left behind. No one seemed to care Those who should seems like they're blind Pretending they're not there Can't they see they hold the key Could make things better if they try Oh my Jaja, tell me why Won't they open up their eyes Now, from literally being thrown in the deep end to competing against the East Germans, Commonwealth Games domination, a behind-the-scenes look at some iconic Olympic Games, muesli bars and family. This is an in-depth look at the life of a great Australian. Enjoy the story of Lisa Curry, AO, MBE and combi lover. So when you search and then you find And know just where to go And thoughts that once used to cloud your mind You see clearly and now you know Mystery, what is to be revealed in King Selassie? Come on, children, try it with me. We want to reach Mount Zion. Well, I'm genuinely excited about this. I have read a memoir, 60 Years of Life, Love and Loss with Lisa Curry. And we've never met before, Lisa. So firstly, lovely to see you. How are you going? And thanks for joining me on the Howie Games. Hi, Howie. It's nice to see you too. I'm good. I am recovering from my 60th birthday party still. Ooh. Uh, <laughs> How husband, long ago was it? Uh, it was on uh, Saturday night, so it was four <laughs> nights ago. But I think it's been a little bit of a whirlwind the last couple of weeks, having my, yes. my book tour and being interstate all over the place. And it was Mother's Day, then it was our anniversary, then it was my birthday and we have a baby due any day. So I've had my, my phone on at night time just in case I get the call up. So there's been a lot on. I haven't got had a lot of sleep, so um, <laughs> it's still going. I've, I've got to go to Brisbane this afternoon to speak at a conference. So, um, yeah, it's kind of never-ending. Who's having the baby? 
My daughter, Morgan. Fantastic. So Does she know got, what she's having? or No, she's got two little boys and they didn't find out this time. So um, I think it's another boy. Um, we don't know. So as long as baby is healthy, we're happy. But she's seriously ready to drop any day. Yeah. Right. Well, hopefully it doesn't happen in the middle of this podcast. What are you to your grandchildren? How do they refer to you? I am Granny. Granny, you do not look like you are the opposite of Granny. <laughs> there's no wrinkles or walking sticks in your world, oh, Lisa. There's plenty of wrinkles. Don't worry about that. It's all it's all about the lighting, isn't it? Um, and walking sticks. Some mornings I feel like I need one. I can barely get out of bed. But no, I thought Granny was fun. It did sound old, and it didn't sound like me. That's why I liked it. But it's really cute when the kids come running to me, they their arms around, and say Granny. So that's cute. Yeah, I liked it. Uh, turning 60, how do you feel about birthdays? I'm a renowned birthday hater. My family know not to contact me on my birthday. I need to get better at embracing birthdays. You had a party, so you were an embracer or, oh, no, it's another year? Um, I think for my 60th and my 50th and my 40th and 30th, I embraced those milestones. Um, anything in between, you know, it doesn't really matter. Just let's go and make me, make me breakfast in bed and I'm happy, you know. Um, but, you know, 60, gosh, you know, years ago I thought 60 was really old. <laughs> now that I'm here, you know, it's just another day. Um, but it's a good reminder as well to look after ourselves because as we get a bit older, you know, if we become a little bit inactive like I have been for the last two years, it starts to creep up on you and when you get out of bed everything aches, it's a good reminder to... Um, to get, give yourself a kick up the backside and get your shit together. I must say, um, and I say this from the bottom of my heart, It's this is, um, I've been looking forward to this because one of my first memories, uh, I was well, I was born in 73, so when the Brisbane Commonwealth Games came around, I was nine and I've got a couple of cricket memories, which is obviously the, the field I've ended up working in, but I reckon one of my first sporting memories was Matilda. And here she is, she's coming to the stadium. Um, the going around the track in Brisbane and you swimming. And I don't know what captivated me. Maybe it was because you seemed young and you had blonde hair and you always had a smile on your face. But I have very fond memories of those Commonwealth Games and you in particular. So it's great to chat with you. Oh, thank you. Yeah, it was a, it was a fun Games. It was my first big, you know, competition. I'd been to Commonwealth Games before, but, you know, when it's in front of your hometown crowd... And, of course, you know, all my friends from school were there and they were the loudest in the stands. And as each day went on and as each gold medal that I won, the crowd seemed to get louder and louder and louder. And, you know, that was a great time in my life. And on the last night of the swimming, I met my husband-to-be and um, I think I was holding up a wall at a pub, actually. You've got to remember, we never drank in those days at all. And because I'd been winning races, everyone was buying me drinks. And, um, yeah, I was a, I had to um, carry the flag in the closing ceremony the next day and I, I did that with a really bad hangover. <laughs> we'll get to all that and exploring your career. And I'm about to ask you about the book. But one thing right near the end of the book that really, really struck a chord with me, and I didn't expect this from you, was your love of combis. Now, 
I'm a man that loves a combi. I've been fortunate to own a combi when I was travelling around the States. Where did this come from and what's your dream combi? Let's talk combis, Lisa. Oh, love to talk combi. So between my husband and I, we have three combis. Oh, nice. Yeah, he's redone his from scratch. Like, they're really nice. Mine, I've we were driving along the Gold Coast one day and I saw this combi in front of me and it was a, kind of a salmon pink and it had a for sale sign on it. And I said, oh, my God, there's a combi and it's for sale and it's pink. And so we just bought it. Like it was just bogged up with old newspapers and cans and it was just in a really bad condition. So anyway, we bought it and a friend of mine um, does up combis. So I gave it to him. He redid the engine um, and we painted it hot pink, redid all the interior, got a rock and roll bed in it. And my other love is crocheting. So I've got all crocheted pillows and blankets and it's a real pinky girly Lisa car and I just love it. It's my, I call it my happy car. So when I'm on my own or, um, you know, my husband works in the state most weekends and then COVID hit and stopped all that. But, you know, when he was away, I just get in my happy car and just drive to the markets and sleep in it overnight somewhere or, you know, it's just so much fun. The the combi for you, is it, is it a, is it a generational thing and you think back to when combis were there or is it a is it a state of mind? Is it a surfy, beach, freedom, sort of chocolate, big air, milk type of feel about it? What is it about the combi for you? Well, I know for my husband it's generational. So he, you know, he was a 60s baby and he lost his mum when he was very young. So he's kind of kind of stuck in that, not stuck in that era, but he just loves everything about that era, as do I. I love the 60s and 70s music. Once the 80s music started, I t- turned off. I, t- I can't stand it. Um, so I'm always <laughs> listening to 60s, 70s music. It's For me, I think it's, um, I don't know, it's kind of like that beach baby, gidget sort yep. of era, um, freedom, drugs, not that I do that. Um, you know, it's just that era of freedom uh, for a lot of people. And I, I know it's a real head turner because everywhere I go, um, doesn't matter where I am. People are waving. They're taking photos of the combi. They ask if they can have a look at it. We go to all the combi meets up here and there are some beautiful combis around. I had the pleasure, Lisa, of buying a combi in Arizona and driving it up to Vancouver and across to New York. Exactly what you're talking about, surf, beaches, sleeping in the back. And there was a real camaraderie when you would stop and fellow, we were young Australians in America and just fellow combi owners would come up and start asking you all these questions about your car and where you got it. And it's a real connection point. Yeah, it is. And, um, you know, people, you, you, you become connected through certain things and it's actually how I was connected to my husband as well. Um, so uh, our first date was going down to, um, uh, where was it, uh, where were we? Yarra Valley. Yarra Valley to a combi meet um, where everyone took their combis and, you know, it was just that love of the same thing that, that brought us really together. So, Lisa, the book, a memoir, 60 Years of Life, Love and Loss. Firstly, congratulations. Um, I obviously read a lot of sport books in my job um, and I loved every moment of it. It took me back, as I said, back to the Matilda days, etc. It's a very heartfelt book. What was the process like to write it? Was it, I'm sure it was uplifting and yet difficult at times as well. And again, congratulations. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, thanks. I, I always wanted to write a book for my 50th being half century. 
Um, and I have about half a manuscript, but I just never got around to finishing it and I just put it on the shelf. So, of course, you're not going to write a book when you're 58 or 61. You know, it's, it's kind of a milestone mm. number. So I always then wanted to do it for my 60th. And then, of course, my beautiful daughter passed away in 2020 and there was no way I was going to do a book. There was I couldn't even get out of bed. I couldn't even speak to people, go in public, anything, and I wasn't going to do this at all. And the publishers called me and they pushed me and they encouraged me and supported me all the way through it. And, you know, even in days when I couldn't even speak, you know, we got through something. And um, and then, you know, just before it went to the printers, my mum passed away. And so it's like, oh, God. So uh, once again, the publishers, they all just, you know, rallied around me and did all the things that needed to be done, like getting the photos together and the captions and everything. And they they really did help me out a lot. And if it wasn't for them, I, I wouldn't be talking to you. I wouldn't have had the book. Um, because I couldn't. But it was good and it was hard. Um, the audio book was extremely hard to do. Mm. But when people listen to that, they get all the emotion that goes with it, the excitement, the sadness, they get everything. Um, if I don't want people to be driving when they're listening to that because, you know, you can't drive with tears coming out of your eyes. It was really, really hard. I could only go not even sentence by sentence. Sometimes I only went from comma to comma, you know, because I just really couldn't breathe. And reading your book out loud is different to reading it in your head, completely different. And how has it been received? You've been doing book tours. I can imagine I, that there's a lot of love coming your way. People obviously on a book tour, they line up and they have a quick chat with you and you, and you, and you sign pages, but are, are people sharing their stories that they can relate to through you? It must be a wonderfully uplifting experience, I think, to connect with so many people through your story. Yeah, I wasn't sure um, how much to share because I, over my 40 years in the public eye, I've shared what I'm happy to share. Mm. Of course, there's lots of things that we don't share um, because it's no one else's business. Um, I, I, found the, I found the chapter um, writing about Grant and I and how we separate, I found that really hard. Um, and I had to revisit that quite a few times and, you know, add things in, take paragraphs out because we still, you know, love and respect each other. And it was hard to try and put into words you know, why we separated um, when you still love someone. But I think, you know, in that instance, it was just, you know, it was amicable and it was hard, but it was something that we needed to do because our paths were starting to go in different directions, um, which makes life um, good enough. And are you happy being in a relationship that's good enough? Are you happy being happy enough? You know, you've got to ask yourself all those questions. So that was that was really hard to do. So how do you decide that? How, how do you decide how much is enough in a relationship? This, this is ostensibly a sports podcast, but we try to sort of follow the themes that you're talking about. How do you decide how much love you need to be in a relationship with someone? That's a rather deep question, by the way, for two people that don't know each other. Yeah, yeah. I think, you know, when you... 
when you wake up in the morning and you look at your partner asleep and you smile and you think, you know, <laughs> I really, I belong here, I feel safe and I belong and they love you unconditionally and, you know, sometimes it's people's differences that makes life interesting. I mean, my husband now, we, we couldn't be we couldn't be further apart on the things that we do. You know, I'm athletic and like sports and fitness and he's an entertainer and late nights and when I get really tired, he goes, come on, babe, rock and roll, rock and roll. Because <laughs> when I was swimming, I'd be in bed by 8.30, you know, 9 o'clock yeah. and up at 4.35 o'clock. So, you know, it's a completely different life. But I think... I think for me, when you when you when you truly feel safe in someone's company, that's when life is good. It's a great description. All right, let's get into the pool. As a young girl, do you do you remember early swimming lessons? We 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 like the rest of us that were dragged off to swimming lessons, or how did you first hit the water? Well, I hit the water and sunk to the bottom when I was <laughs> when I was five. That's when dad right. dad said we better get the kids, you know down to the swimming pool, learn, learn how to swim because he loved boating. So we'd all go out in the boat. My mum still can't swim, well, still couldn't swim. She never swam. So, um, yeah, I jumped in to be with Dad and just went to the bottom. So we started swimming. I remember, you know, our first swimming um, mentor, coach, he used to hit the, the water with a big stick. Um, and then I went to another man and he taught me all four strokes, except butterfly, I couldn't do butterfly. Um, but yeah, there are parts of that that I remember, and and when I started training, I really loved. Oh, I just loved being there. I mean, I was I was um, learning piano, and we had nuns teaching us, and they used to hit us on the knuckles with a ruler. Oh, old school! Couldn't do that these days, could you? Uh, but my no. my brother kept going, and he's a, a he's a magnificent pianist. Um, and so I tried dancing as well, and wasn't very good at that. So, um, yeah, mum just took us down to the local pool and that was it. You know, Harry Gallagher saw me swim, came and asked me to join his squad and started the next morning and the coach that was his assistant, um, Cole Peachy, he said to me, just dive in and do a 1,000. And I thought, a 1,000 what? Like a 1,000 strokes, a 1,000 laps? I don't know. So I just kept swimming until he told me to stop and that was Kind of my first lesson. I just did whatever I was told to do. That came as a theme in your book that you were a beast as far as meeting and passing training requirements. Yeah, I, yeah, I guess you could say that. Um, I just, I loved everything I did. Um, I did it 100%. I never skipped out. We tried to a couple of times but got in trouble. Um, and, you know, it's the difference between good and Great. The great athletes have to do that little bit extra every single day and they do it without question. Um, and then you've got the greatest. So I never never made you know, that next little step to be one of the greatest. But I look back on my career and I wouldn't change a thing. Back to Lisa in a moment. Next up on the show, a real treat, especially for me and hopefully for you, American Broadcasting Royalty Mr. Jim Nance. Now, Jim is the guru, the guru of sports TV. This is a man that calls the NFL, including Super Bowls, March Madness, US PGA events, and the Masters. Jim is the fella in the butler cabin doing the green jacket presentation. This is real big boy stuff. You've seen these guys come in 
when it's the first time, when they've lived out their dream, when they come in and they're, they're getting, I'm sure they're getting wired up with a microphone, like how are they? Are they overwhelmed? Are they ecstatic? Can they not believe it? Like you're seeing their winning emotion before we do for that period where the techs will be getting them all ready to go and is their head exploding that they've just, like in Adam's case or or Scotty Scheffler now, lived out their entire golfing dream in that moment? Like what a privilege to be there, Jim. It is. I mean, it feels like uh, someone's being knighted. It, it, the moment is just so big for anybody that plays the game and you dream of having a moment like that. But I think at that point, they're honestly, I think they're in shock. I think they don't actually even, they can't even feel anything. They can't get a sense of it. It's their mind has got to be racing in a million different directions. But I will tell you this, when you see Tiger come in five times, not not the fifth time, the fifth time in 2019. That was yep. one with appreciation all over, written all over him. But maybe the second, third, and fourth time, I saw in him relief. You know, he had huh. the weight of people expecting him to win. And uh, I just saw a face that 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 expressed like, yeah, I've done it. Do not miss the legendary Jim Nance next up on the show. What about his voice? All righty, let's get back to Lisa. The most recent episode of this, Lisa, was with Tanasi Kokonakis, young tennis player, and he explained to me how much tennis he was playing as a 12- and 13-year-old. And I've done a lot of these now, and it blew me away, the commitment required to be a tennis player. But when you speak to the swimmers, whether it's Grant Hackett on the show or Steph Rice or, or Liesl Jones or Thorpey, I always take a breath when they explain to me what their school routine around swimming was like because I don't know if there's any greater commitment than being a swimmer at a young age. Was that it for you? Was it training, training, training? What What were your days and when were you getting up? And what How How would you get up when the alarm went off? Yeah, look, I guess um, I didn't really start training seriously until I was 13. Um, okay. My coach started me off quite um, easily which is probably one of the reasons why I kept swimming for so long because I was never had that injury um, factor. I used to s- sleep in my togs, so I'd hear <laughs> mum's alarm go off. No one had to ever get me up. I was ready to go. I went to the pool. But for me, the difference is I was a sprinter. Yeah. You know, I, I was not like Ian Thorpe who had to swim 10, 12 kilometres. We only did that for one week at the AIS when we did Hell Week, but... For me, I was a sprinter, so I was like 25-metre walkbacks, 50-metre sprints, 50-metre sprints, you know, jumping up and down the side of the pool, doing breaststroke kick with 10-kilo weights above my head, you know, diving over lane ropes, trying to get off the blocks faster and further than anyone else. So my coach was really innovative in the early years and we had um, what we call mini-gym for half an hour before every training session. We'd do 10 sets of, uh, sorry, yeah, 10 sets of 15 tuck jumps like knee-high tuck jumps before every training session, you know, and we were fast, we were strong, we were springy off the blocks, you know, and but the whole squad was doing it. And my coach, Mr King, we'd have five lanes 11 times a week. So we had 11 sessions. We only had Wednesday, Jeez. Friday mornings off and Sunday afternoons. And my coach, um, he sat down with me one day and he said, okay, we need to just discuss your events and what you want to be good at. So which ones would you like to be good at? And I said to him, I still remember this, I said to him, 
um, 100 breaststroke, the 100 freestyle, the 100 um, fly and the 200 and 400 medley. And he said, <laughs> you can't do it all. And I, and I remember thinking, why can't I do it all? I, I couldn't work out why I couldn't do it all. In fact, I nearly, I nearly did all of those except for backstroke and I added in the 50 freestyle as well. Uh, you have a look at the age you're operating at, 1978 Commonwealth Games and then the World Champs in West Berlin, well, you're, you're, you're seven, 16 and then 17. But we can't go through every uh, every event, event you went to, but I love to talk to you about the 1980 Moscow Olympics. And the first thing before you got there, that thing that stuck out in the book, was that you would obviously with the boycotts going on and I – it's before my time, but I presume it was due to the Russian situation in Afghanistan, um, that uh, uh, nations weren't going, individuals weren't going. Am I right in saying, reading your book, that you were offered a financial incentive not to compete at the Olympics? Yes, that's right. We were offered $6,000 to not go to the Olympics. Now, think huh. about it back in those days, $6,000 was a lot of money because we, yeah. we never made, we never got paid at all when we were swimming. After that, I got a $2,000 grant once from the government uh, to further my swimming career, like $2,000. So the 6K K was being offered by the government ostensibly not to compete? Was it the government money? Right. Yeah. So um, let me see. There were, I think, three three or four swimmers that didn't go and and got the money. Um, But, you know, in those days, you have to remember... Back in those days, for some reason, you only went to one Olympics. You know, yes. Shane Gould only went to one Olympics and then she retired. That was the thing. You you made the Olympics and then you retired. So there was no way in the world I was going to stay home from these Olympics. It might have been my only chance ever. Well, as you join us at the Lennon Stadium, Central Stadium for the games of the 22nd Olympiad, following a day that has been dull, cool and overcast, the sun has broken through and there is blue sky above for the opening ceremony of the Olympic Games. We are 10 minutes so, so tell me about, um, I had the pleasure of going to the uh, Winter Olympics, it's 20, oh gee, I'll get the dates wrong, 2014 I think in Sochi. So we started in Moscow, obviously in the middle of winter. Um, so I've got memories of Moscow. What was what was it like in 1980 for an 18-year-old? Like, I don't know how long it took you to get there for a start where you had to go by, but what was, before we get to the Games themselves, what was Moscow like? Obviously behind the Iron Curtain at this stage. Yeah, it was. Um, security guards everywhere, machine guns everywhere. The city was very grey, very dull. Um, no children pa- playing in the parks. Um, mm. The food was... Well, the food in the village was good because it always is because they have every food from around the world for all the athletes. Um, we used to trade togs with swimmers. So, you know, I'd I'd give my Australian togs to a Swedish girl. She'd give me hers. In Moscow, they were trading vodka. <laughs> <laughs> of course they were. Yeah. yeah. So um, on the last night in Moscow, uh, we were drinking some of the vodka and one of the boys, uh, he was... Um, he passed out and they put him in the lift and he was going up and down the building in the lift. I'm not sure he had many <laughs> clothes on either, um, but it was just it was just funny. But also our um, our interpreter that we had for that team, he still contacts me now, sends Does me he? a message every now and again. Yeah, yeah. So <laughs> it was a it was an interesting city. Um, uh, yeah, very 
I remember very dull, very drab. And now, you know, you can look back now and see photos of, you know, indoor pools that have just been, you know, discarded and, you know, it's just um, nothing's left of those of those pools. It's pretty sad actually. So the games themselves, you talk about in your book, um, in 1978 in the World Champs in West Berlin, it's the first time that the world was uh, seeing the East German swimmers and you talked about their physical size, but you said it was to the next extent and we'll get where they placed in your races. But what were they like as, as a young, you know, you, you always an incredibly fit, phenomenally built athlete, but what were you competing against? Um, young girls who had done the work but, with the uh, added amount of drugs that they were taking, they were able to do more work. So they were training like three times a day. They Ooh. they were not having recovery days. See, when you do a lot of training, you have to recover, and that's having mornings off or it's having recovery sessions. There was nothing like that, and that's what the drugs can do is they can allow you to keep keep on going, keep on going. It was amazing to watch them. They were... In some cases, they were normal-looking girls, but in other cases, they were really manly. Like, you know, they just were, were not attractive girls. And, you know, I don't like saying that because everyone has their own beauty. But there was something about them that they were they were really manly. Square jaws, deep voices, pimples all over them, very, very muscular, really, wow. really big girls. And if when I lined up against some of them, I look like a peewee compared to some of them. <laughs> so was there an understanding or an awareness amongst you and the competitors you were competing against something different or did the world not understand at that stage? Oh, look, in those years we had suspicions but we never knew. There was no proof at all. And it wasn't until years later that the proof came out. And it was actually um, the guy that started it, Dr. Werner Franke, uh, mm. he was the one that discovered a lot of the discarded files in East Berlin. So when the wall came down around Berlin on the 9th of November in 1989, as everyone was escaping East Berlin, he and his partner ran in to East Berlin, went to the Stasi oh. um, headquarters collected as many files as they could because the police there at the time, they freaked out. They just tore up as much as they could and took off because this was their one, maybe their one and only chance to get out of East Germany, to get out mm. of communist Germany. So everyone just took off. And it's interesting because my brother lived in the West, in West Berlin, and he had friends in the East and he tells all these stories as well. And so mm. Werner Franke got back and just sticky taped all these documents back together again and he had all his proof. It's amazing. And he sent it. He sent me all the proof that I needed for my three races. So I have tried over the years to try and do something. I, you know, I, I went and saw Jacques Rogge, the, the president. Tell of the me IOC. about that because that was making me laugh in the book. So you you came for so so people understand fifth in the hundred fly. The East Germans come first, second, and third. Yep. You come fifth. So you, you pretty much went. <laughs> I'm a bit of artistic license here, but you pretty much went and knocked on Jacques Rog's door. This is the president of the IOC at the time. Yep, yep. So <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love this. <laughs> I was in holiday. I was on holidays in Europe, and um, 
uh, I thought, you know what, I'm going to go and see Jack Rock and just see what he can do for me, you know. So I went to the headquarters in Lausanne and, and asked if I could see him. And she looked at me as I was stupid, like you just can't <laughs> waltz in here and, you know, talk to the president of the IOC. I think she's got a point, Lisa. Yeah. I think she's got a point, to be fair. <laughs> like it's not like you're just making a hair appointment. I think she, I think she thought she'd put me off and told me that um, he wouldn't be back for three weeks. So I said, okay, we'll make that appointment. I'll come back in three weeks. So what happened was the night before I was to meet him, I didn't know, but there was a medical conference on in Lausanne. We could not find a hotel room anywhere. We were driving around in a taxi looking at parks, trying to find one with a park bench because that's where I was Oy. going to stay. Um, but rightly or wrongly, I was going to see him, but we, we ended up finding a room. It was 500 euros <laughs> For the room, and we only slept there for about five hours before we had to get up because it was so late trying to find a room. So it was very expensive. It was very late, um, but I did get to see him, and he, oh, look, he was okay, but he was not going to budge because I kept saying to him, you know, what's your legacy going to be as president Mm. of the IOC? And he kept saying to me, you're very persistent, Lisa, it's like, yeah, well, you know, you just gave me free tickets to the um, the Olympic Museum down the road. We went there yesterday and you gave <laughs> a guy who, you know, you took his medal off him in 1912 and in 1984 you gave it back to his family. So you've mm. done it once, you can do it again. And I had already done all the work. There's only 73 female swimmers worldwide that would need medals given back to. So I don't know. It's kind of ongoing, but no one can seem to, no one can seem to do it. But it's a good story, and you know what? Yes. I actually think, I actually think a movie could be made from all of that, because it's an incredible story, the East German story. So, so now someone's just turned sixty. You had tremendous success, which we'll touch on, like a phenomenal athletic career. Could have, could have been a little bit better. <laughs> I'm not complaining. Well, well, I'm just saying, I. You know, I'd, my my whole my whole career, all I wanted was to stand on the Olympic dice, and I missed out on, you know, so many occasions on the smallest, minuscule amounts. Like t- we're talking tenths of seconds. Yes. Um, so, so that's my question for you. If yeah. if you got a letter tomorrow from the IOC saying, Lisa, we've done a review, we are going back retrospectively, and the fact that you came fifth in Moscow and had three tainted swimmers in front of you. Here is an Olympic silver medal. Day to day in your life, what difference does that make for Lisa Curry? Tremendous difference, satisfaction, nice, trinket, a reward for hard work. Where, where would it sit with you? That would sit in acknowledgement yep. of being the second fastest, cleanest athlete of the world. Yeah. But unlike the English girl who came fourth, for her to be recognised as the true gold medalist, Mm. back Mm. in those days would have made a huge difference to her life, huge difference. Because English, you know, swimmers didn't win, well, they didn't win any medals. So for her to be recognised as a gold medalist would have made a huge difference to her. I made my path, I made my way because of who I am and what I did, you know, because it's not... As I found out later on, it's not about the medals that you win because there's not one medal displayed in this house. There never has been. 
Um, this, this, that, but photos is something that if I had that photo of me on the dais or with that medal or being presented that medal, that's what I would have on the wall. Um, but it's not about the medal. It's about who you become trying to win that medal. And what it's made of me is far greater than, than any medal. It's a great answer. Um, we, we touched the start about Matilda and the Commonwealth Games in Brisbane. Hundred fly, two hundred and four hundred IM, three gold medals. It was it was your games, as you said at the start, a little bit hungover, but carried the the flag at the closing ceremony, and then just exploded on the national conscience of of who you were. How were those games, and how much did they change your life, Lise? Um, well, I met Grant on the last night, so that changed my life because mm-hmm. I married him. Uh, mm. I had lunch with the Queen, so that was amazing. Did you? Yeah. How was the Queen? Well, she was good. She was talked about the weather. She talked about how lovely <laughs> it was here in Australia. Um, she asked us all, you know, what our events were and and you know how we found the games and. Um, and then after that, I met Princess Diana as well. And then years later, I had dinner with Prince Charles. So, <laughs> you know, exciting things ca- came from those Brisbane games. But for me, I was just a young kid from Brisbane. You know, I was a bit daggy, you know, probably still am. <laughs> but um, <laughs> The fact that you use the word daggy, I think, daggy. <laughs> shows that you were probably daggy. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Well, you know, I don't, I'm just normal. You know, I was just a kid who swam fast for a, a period of time in my life and had a ball doing it, but, you know, was given so many opportunities, which I took advantage of and just put me where I am today. That's the end of Lisa Curry Part A. Dive into Part B. Listener.